What's up, y'all? This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. This episode is on opioid-free anesthesia and was originally posted on March 3rd, 2019 on the podcast from the head of the bed. You're going to hear from Tom Barbo and Jamie Reuter. Tom is the founder of the Society of Opioid-Free Anesthesia, and Jamie is the founder of Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences. In this episode, we discuss the development of opioid-free anesthesia and where it fits into enhanced recovery programs and some specific techniques of how to provide a comfortable opioid-free perioperative experience for our patients regardless of the surgery. At the time of this recording, Tom Barabo was the chief CRNA at Lexington Surgery Center in Lexington, Kentucky. He completed his master's in anesthesia training at Case Western Reserve University and has since gone on to complete his doctor of nursing practice also in anesthesia. Tom has a passion for teaching anesthesia providers and others on opioid-free anesthesia, enhanced recovery after surgery, ultrasound-guided regional anesthesia, and point-of-care ultrasound. He is the president and founder of the Society of Opioid-Free Anesthesia and is a member of the American Association of Nurse Anesthesiology and the Kentucky Association of Nurse Anesthetists. Jamie Reuter is the program director and founder of Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences. She completed her anesthesia training as a CRNA at Baylor College of Medicine and practices at Houston Methodist Hospital, which is part of Texas Medical Center. She created Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences in 2017 with a mission to be the foundation for excellence in continuing anesthesia education. Now, I've taught for Cornerstone since early 2018 and have really enjoyed meeting so many CRNAs who listen to the podcast at these conferences and working with Jamie and the other faculty, including Tom. This discussion was recorded during Cornerstone's 2019 Scottsdale, Arizona conference, and we had an absolute blast hanging out that evening, chatting and laughing about life, anesthesia, and the state of the world. You'll pick up on that laughter and mood right off the bat. And with that, let's get to the show. So, well, Tom... Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, folks, we are hanging out in Scottsdale, Arizona, and we've got Tom Barabo in the house and Jamie Reuter joining the podcast this evening. I'm very excited to sit down with the two of you and chat about uh, the Society of Opioid-Free Anesthesia, the concept of opioid-free anesthesia. Uh, and so to jump right into it, Tom, I would love for you to give us a little bit of uh, your professional background, where you work, and what is your role with the Society of Opioid-Free Anesthesia? Sure. So as a sort of a practicing CRNA, I'm the chief CRNA at the Lexington Surgery Center in Lexington, Kentucky, uh, but I also function as the president and founder of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia. That's awesome. When, when did you found SOFA? We've been around for a little over two years at this point. Uh, this We were really founded the society out of a sort of a, a grassroots interest in this anesthetic technique. And there was so many CRNAs out there who were looking for more information on it, wanted to know how to do it. And uh, it was a, a subject I was very passionate about. I was doing a lot of lecturing on it. And just the demand for information and grew so great that I wasn't able to, to handle it on my own. And so we founded the society to 
uh, meet this need in the anesthesia community. What, what got you interested in teaching people about opioid-free anesthesia? Education is something that I've always been passionate about, and opioid-free anesthesia was something I just sort of fell into in my anesthesia practice. Uh, wasn't something I ever set out to do as a goal initially, but it was the end result of sort of extreme multimodal analgesia and as I began incorporating more and more different drugs, different classes of medications, combining them in different ways, uh, my opioid requirements grew less and less. And finally, it got to the point that uh, they were so ridiculously small. It was, I had to ask myself, why am I still giving these? Is there any benefit to it? And when I stopped, all of a sudden, the patients did remarkably better. And so I had to start chasing down a different rabbit hole of why does avoiding opioids during surgery lead to improved outcomes? And we have this sort of idea in our mind of opioids as pain medicine. And so it didn't really make sense at first why not giving a pain medicine during surgery would lead to less post-operative pain after the surgery's all over. That's very interesting. So uh, I would love for you to take a minute and just tell us a little bit more about the Society of Opioid-Free Anesthesia. What is your, what's your mission? What do you do? What's your, what's your hope? Where, it, where is, and it's referred to as SOFA, I believe. Mm, correct. Where is SOFA at? Uh, but yeah, tell us a little bit more about the society. <clears throat> the mission of the Society for Opioid-Free Anesthesia is to educate anesthesia providers on how to give opioid-free anesthesia and the benefits of this anesthetic technique. We're also involved in promoting research on this topic. We work with uh, a lot of individuals who are publishing papers, doing research on the benefits of opioid-free anesthesia, the best way to give opioid-free anesthesia. And there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in that area. Uh, sort of as a, a, a side note, uh, we've really been it was never our mission to sort of go into the political arena, but we find ourselves being engaged by uh, politicians, government agencies, health and human services, the DEA. Uh, we've consulted for all these agencies um, as they try and get a handle on the opioid crisis and look for solutions to that problem. That is very fascinating. I definitely want to ask you uh, more about SOFA and more about the opioid crisis here in a minute. But Jamie, I want to pull you into the conversation. So you run, you founded Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences mm -hmm. a few years ago. Uh, what in your um, outlook on continuing education for CRNAs, what inspired you to pull uh, Tom in as a presenter at your conferences? Well, first of all, Tom is a rock star. <laughs> I'm just going to put that out there. Um, and second of all, we love what he's doing. We love what he is bringing to the anesthesia table. His knowledge is amazing. I'm just very fascinated with this whole SOFA 
his whole technique. I follow him on Facebook. I'm very entertained, very intrigued, and I had to have him come talk with for us. That's awesome. Have you found that the CRNAs attending your conferences are looking for more information on opioid sparing or opioid free techniques? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think everyone in their practice is looking for some a solution to this problem. Do, uh, Tom, how do you think this fits into the, the greater uh, conversation on uh, enhanced recovery programs? You know, enhanced recovery has such a, a wide umbrella of uh, topics and techniques. You know, we're talking about nutritional status of the patient. We're talking about fluid management, but we're also talking about uh, non-opioid pain management. And we know that one of the things that we can do to help patients heal faster and to get out of the, the hospital faster with fewer complications is to do a better job managing their pain than can be done with opioids. Traditionally, uh, enhanced recovery protocols involve sort of a, a low opioid technique right. um, and, and really focus on minimizing it. And with opioid-free anesthesia, uh, we are able to completely eliminate the opioids from the intraoperative period while the surgery is going on. And the, the studies have shown that by doing that really well, we drastically reduce post-operative pain and even very small amounts of opioids during surgery lead to uh, dramatic increases in post-operative pain. And so uh, opioid-free anesthesia is a sort of a separate technique, but it fits very well into what enhanced recovery is doing and it can fit uh, partner very well with enhanced recovery protocols, uh, especially in that, that pain management portion of it. I think that's great. I think it, it almost seems like as enhanced recovery programs mature, which they have, one, been around for a long time. I mean, Europe has been practicing the idea of fast-track patients with colorectal surgery and other surgeries and enhanced recovery programs for some time, decades even. But I think as enhanced recovery programs gain traction in the United States, and as they continue to evolve, I think that perhaps they will mature uh, into the direction of opioid-free anesthesia. I completely agree, and we're already uh, seeing that happen. And once you get to a, you know, a certain point in your anesthetic practice, it doesn't take very much from going from a low opioid anesthetic to a opioid free anesthetic. And so the way traditionally uh, enhanced recovery protocols have been set up, uh, they're very close to being able to accomplish that and it doesn't take much. And for a lot of providers, the difference is just the understanding that it can be done and that there's benefit to doing it. And, you know, we talk about the fact that fentanyl was created in 1960 and very quickly incorporated into anesthetic care and becoming sort of a cornerstone of our anesthetic technique. And so you think about that's almost 60 years of doing something the exact same way. And mm. 
three generations of anesthesia providers coming and going and giving essentially the same anesthetic. And so there's a lot of preconceptions that we have to break. And sort of the other point to that is that this seems like a radical departure from this traditional anesthetic technique involving the use of fentanyl, high-dose opioids, very potent opioids, but in reality, opioid-free anesthetic is sort of the natural progression. It's the end point of the natural progression that we're already on. You know, we started with, with high-doses op opioids. We went to a, a multimodal technique and adding some Tylenol and, and an NSAID like Toradol or ibuprofen to that. And then we went to these uh, ERAS programs and low opioid anesthesia. And the more opioids that we're able to eliminate and the more better medications that we're able to use, medications that not only block uh, acute surgical pain, but block this, these changes to the nervous system that cause uh, post-operative pain, the better our patients do. I have a question, Tom, um, and this kind of goes along with the fentanyl usage for the past 60 years. What do you think is the biggest barrier to people using opioid-free anesthesia? Do you think it's the question of, can this be done? Do you think it's, what, do you, what are your thoughts? That's a great question. Um, and it's really multifactorial. Uh, we certainly in healthcare are slow to change and rightly so we need evidence to change our practice because we need to know that uh, what we're changing to isn't going to cause more harm than where we're at and so you know depending on the comfort level of the provider or the opinion of the provider uh, various providers need various levels of evidence before they're willing to make that transition. Uh, you know, if you look at the, the stages of, of change, you know, there's the, the early adapters, the late adapters, the, and so, you know, we, we have to reach that sort of critical mass where the majority of providers are willing to make that change. And then there's just uh, procedural uh, things that need to be done. Uh, a lot of the medications we use aren't necessarily readily available in every hospital and every operating room. And so even if an anesthesia provider understands that maybe this is a better technique using these other medications is what they should be doing, if there's too many barriers, if it's too hard to have those medications available and, and they and use them, uh, then it's just not going to happen. So we need to make it easier for providers to, to have what they need to give an opioid-free anesthetic. And we have this sort of, uh, you know, they call it the sort of silos of healthcare. You know, the, the pharmacies in one silo, the providers are in another silo. And we don't have the opportunity to come together and cohesively to create a plan for how we want uh, 
the, the patient experience to go. And that's one thing that enhanced recovery protocols have really done is provided a, a place for all the stakeholders to come together and create uh, a plan so that everyone's on the same page. And uh, so outside of facilities that have gone through that process, it can be incredibly difficult um, to have everyone on the same page working towards this goal. Yeah, I, I think you uh, hit that out of the park, essentially. So what I, what I hear you saying is that there's a process that involves the individual provider so looking for those innovators, so I, I would put SOFA, yourself, other people who have done massive research on opioid-free anesthesia in that innovator category. There's uh, the early adopters, right? Um, and then it's being able to reach that critical mass of folks to communicate that there is actually a better way to do anesthesia. I have to be honest, Tom, when I came out of school, went to a great program, Western Carolina University, in the house. <laughs> Uh, what, but what? <laughs> Case Western University, Tom Barbo. Baylor. Baylor. <laughs> right? mm-hmm. Texas girl for sure. So I went to a great program. Our, our CRNAs, uh, our, our faculty members were, were pro-black, pro-moving away from opioids. But the, the, there's, there's the individual clinician issue and then there's the system issue, right? About making medications available, about the culture that you work in. When I hit my clinical practice, the norm for any big surgical case was to uh, swing through the Pixis and pick up Versed for sedation, uh, five cc's of fentanyl, and a stick of a Dilaudid, a milligram of Dilaudid. And like, that's the plan, right? And I think that's where a lot of CRNAs still live. Like the, the bell curve of change on this, I think is still moving through the nation. And I believe that the work of SOFA and hopefully mediums like social media and the podcast and whatever and Facebook and conferences can help be that instigation of change to communicate to folks. You don't have to reach for opioids as your first line drug. You can move to a better technique that actually is evidence-based and has better outcomes for your patients. Leave the happy pack at the pharmacy. Yeah. We call it a happy pack. The happy pack? Yeah. 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 5-Fentanyl to it of Dilaudid? Yeah. Yeah, I always get ketamine too. Oh, well, who doesn't love some ketamine? <laughs> you know. It's my fave. I, I want to, I want to, th- there's a couple specific questions I have for you to, to put some nuts and bolts to this. What, what do you tell your patients? Uh, how do you communicate this idea of opioid-free anesthesia to your patients? So it depends, you know, like everything we do, it's, it's very patient-specific and, you know, I, I'd like to say that sort of the overarching goal of mine is that at some point we stop talking about opioid-free anesthesia, that it's no longer talked about, right? It's just anesthesia and that's how we do it. Uh, because we know that this is a better anesthetic technique. Pain is managed better. There's fewer side effects. It's safer. There's n- much less respiratory depression with an opioid-free anesthetic. So that is where I see the future headed. 
if you've had a patient who's had surgery before um, and had side effects, whether it's severe post-operative nausea, vomiting, um, severe pain afterwards, you know, I, the, the conversation's a little bit different. We say, you had this really negative experience in the past with the traditional uh, anesthetic paradigm where you got, you know, the anesthetic gas, you got high doses of an opioid. We're going to do it differently today. Uh, we're going to do what's called an opioid-free anesthetic. That does not mean it's analgesia-free. It doesn't mean that we're not going to give you any pain medicine. But while you're asleep, we're going to use a variety of medications to manage your pain. And when you wake up, you have a much better chance of not having nausea, of not having severe pain. Now, when you wake up, you are in control of your care. If you are having pain, we're not going to let you remain in pain. The goal is not complete elimination of one class of medication with no regard to the outcome of the patient. The goal is to give the patient a better anesthetic, to reduce symptoms, and if they need an opioid postoperatively, they're going to need much less. They don't have the tolerance, they don't have the hyperalgesia built up from having an opioid during the surgery. And so I tell them, it's up to you. If you're having severe pain and you want an opioid for that, that will be available to you. We'll give that to you. If uh, for those patients that have had severe post-operative nausea, vomiting in the past, you tell us, we're not just going to subject you to these medications that put you at risk for that. So you've got much less risk of having nausea in, in the recovery room. You've got a reasonable chance of being comfortable as you're waking up. But if you're not comfortable, if you're in so much pain that you would like to risk having an opioid to treat that pain and risk having the nausea, that's up to you. We'll do it. But you are in control. You tell us what you need. That's great. That's great. Tell me about how much does uh, regional anesthesia factor in to the ability to provide an opioid-free anesthetic? The context of my question, again, goes back to the mix of uh, CRNA practices and, and frankly just anesthesia practices globally, including physician anesthesiologists and residents. The way that we practice nationally, I feel like uh, regional anesthesia is underutilized. There's going to be a lot of people that listen to this podcast that may want to give a block, may know about a block, but their institution isn't block-centric or not up to speed yet. But how much uh, in an ideal world would regional factor into the ability to provide opioid-free anesthesia? It's my question as well, because that's a big hindrance for me for using opioid-free anesthesia. And I'm not sure that people who are not familiar with opioid-free anesthesia, if they think like, oh, they're doing blocks and then they're just giving anesthesia. People may not know that opioid-free anesthesia is not specifically blocks and anesthesia without opioids. Sure. I'm so not sure people think there's, that. there's a couple points uh, that we can sort of derive from this or a couple directions we can take this. So one is opioid-free anesthesia and opioid-free post-operative analgesia 
are two separate things, okay? And so just because a patient receives an opioid-free anesthetic but then requires a small amount of opioid to manage their post-operative pain doesn't mean that the opioid-free anesthetic has failed or that it wasn't worth doing. Yeah. Uh, we can say, uh, both from the literature and from just the science behind it, that giving an opioid-free anesthesia not only reduces post-operative pain, but when that patient or if that patient needs an opioid to manage their post-operative pain, they will need far less. Their body is more responsive to opioids. So I think that's point number one to understand. There is not a surgery out there that can't be done with an opioid-free anesthetic. We have CRNAs who are doing opioid-free anesthesia for open heart procedures. We ha have CRNAs out there doing for lung procedures. Um, it doesn't matter what the procedure is. It can be done as an opioid-free anesthetic. That's a great point. Without a peripheral nerve block. I'll tell you what, at, at, heart, at heart center that I rotated through with uh, during clinicals would drop in uh, catheters either side of the sternotomy with on-cue pumps, and the patients would be sitting yeah. up post-op day one completely pain-free. Yes. Absolutely. Sitting um, up in the chair, getting yes. up, walking around, pain-free. It's wonderful. Unbelievable. I don't know why everyone doesn't use it. Yeah. You know, that goes back to that conversation we were having about change is slow and um, people Resources. are... Resources. Well, it is. It's much more resource intensive, right? You have to have anesthesia providers who know how to do the block. You have to have the equipment. You have to be willing to take the extra five or ten minutes to do the procedure. And while that doesn't seem like a large amount of time, you multiply that over however many operating rooms, however many surgeries during the day. But the thing that we have to sort of come back to is our care needs to be patient-centric. It's not about our schedule, the operating room schedule. We need to make the time to do the right thing for our patients. I mean, that really influences the dynamics of how you structure your groups and your patient care delivery, your anesthesia delivery, right? So uh, I want to touch on that. Uh, obviously, this, is, this can be a very hot political conversation, but what do you see the role of CRNAs in being able to help provide blocks, regional anesthesia, opioid-free anesthesia uh, across the nation? You know, it's been mentioned recently online in some of the forums that you know, over half of CRNAs work in anesthesia care team models alongside our physician anesthesiology colleagues. Uh, I think in many of those practices, CRNAs are not utilized on regional anesthesia teams, despite the fact that we are trained to provide regional anesthesia techniques uh, in, in every training program across the United States. So the question specifically is how can CRNAs help provide that patient-centric care in institutions across the United States? You know, that seems like it would be a really easy answer. Uh, you know, just let them do it. Um, you know, obviously CRNAs are experts in anesthesia. They're able to provide these techniques and we need to just let them do it. The, the problem with that answer is that's not everyone's answer, right? It's often more complicated than that. Right. And so... 
for the CRNAs who are in those practices where they're not allowed to do those things, they need to have an eye on or be working towards making that possible. And the, the big thing, and I think the hardest thing for so many anesthesia providers, is that means developing relationships, utilizing interpersonal skills to uh, form alliances with the surgeons, with uh, the anesthesiologists, with the pharmacists, with the hospital administrators, with the OR nurses, with the schedulers, because we essentially need to redefine the patient experience, the entire process of patient throughput with a mind to outcomes. You know, the way so many systems are structured right now, it's how quickly can we just move people right. through the system. But what we've learned in the heart of opioid-free anesthesia and the ERAS programs is that when we do a better job of providing anesthesia care, patients heal faster, they have fewer outcomes, they leave the hospital faster, and that ends up having a cost savings. Right, fewer and poor outcomes, right. And so we need to be shouting that from the out from the mountaintops that CRNAs can help provide better outcomes. Yeah, I think especially in the age of, uh, I mean, there is that shift going on in healthcare nationally that our reimbursement paradigms are uh, beginning to shift towards uh, being able to prove and demonstrate better quality outcomes. That, mm -hmm. you know, CMS and the federal government, Medicare, Medicaid, they are really uh, beginning to push quality outcomes um, along the lines of reimbursement, which speaks volumes to healthcare administrators, right? Because that is your business, is how do you process, not just how do you, how do, you do more widgets, how do you get more patients through the OR or perform more procedures, uh, but we're really beginning to look at the quality question. Uh, and I think that it influences the care that we do. And I think you're exactly right. ERAS, opioid-free anesthesia, the quality care that CRNAs and other professionals can provide, I think is beginning to kind of get laser focused in, in U.S. healthcare. I agree. And I think what's critical for CRNAs to understand is that you can't be shy about this. You have to be out there tooting your own horn, so to speak, talking about the quality care that you can be providing, and you need to get out of the anesthesia silo. You need to be forming those relationships with the surgeons, with the pharmacists, with the uh, administrators, and talking about how can we work together to make this happen. I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing. I couldn't say it better myself. <laughs> I mean, it really takes it. it you know, uh, it it is amazing when you realize what is involved in change in healthcare. Right? You get into it. I got into it thinking that 
everyone's just here to do the best job that they can do to provide pa- the best patient care and the best outcomes. Mm-hmm. It's not always everyone's motivation, right? Yeah. There's political mm-hmm. motivations, there's financial motivations, there's uh, you know a, a myriad of business motivations. And hopefully, the f- I mean, I think the federal government is pushing us in a healthy direction of having to look at quality outcomes as a measure for reimbursement. When you tie that to dollars, then healthcare providers begin to really look at our outcomes. Uh, but I, it, it does really take that interdisciplinary approach to figure out how can we as a system, as a healthcare community, provide better care for our patients. And I think it's especially hard for anesthesia providers. I don't want to say we're an antisocial group of people, but none of us go into anesthesia because we like talking to people and we have strong interpersonal skills. I mean, we skills. are doing a podcast there right now. We are talking together. <laughs> I mean, we're sitting we really got close. together. <laughs> <laughs> well, you write the time thing down and you can just go back and delete it later. <laughs> I think... I agree with you there, right? But you're right. Your point is we got to get out of the silo. We got to actually begin. No, he didn't. (laughs) We got to actually start talking to people about what it is that we do, what we can do for our patients. Well, and and above and beyond that, we have to realize that these interpersonal skills are as much a required. Uh, skill for anesthesia providers, as is our ability to intubate or provide a safe anesthetic. We have to be able to engage with the other stakeholders in the operating room. That's awesome. That said really well. Agreed. Hey, I want to I want to drill back down on some of the uh, pharmacology and physiology of this opioid-free anesthesia world. Now. Uh, you have delivered some phenomenal presentations here at the Cornerstone Anesthesia Conference on uh, the physiology of pain. It was uh, really amazing. We could certainly do it. was a, epic. We could do a pot. I mean, I was sitting there going, Amazing. Just keep talking. <laughs> so we, could, we could, not to blow smoke, Very impressed. Uh, but we, He's a rock star. We could do a whole series on that, right? Mm-hmm. But I think some, I think some particular questions that are, that, that remain confusing or kind of in the stratosphere for some CRNAs or anesthesia providers or surgeons for that matter, will you speak briefly to the concepts of uh, wind up in central sensitization in opioid induced hyperalgesia and where opioids fit into that picture, and again, how opioid-free anesthesia can help us address some of those physiologic challenges. Sure, so... You know, just like in a minute or two. Right, right. (laughs) As opposed to an (laughs) hour-long Right, so as opposed to my hour-long lecture that barely scratches the surface of the subject. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, so proceed. Yeah. yeah. So, so the elevator speech. You know, the traditional thought process behind pain is it's a sort of one-way transmission. There's uh, something, a stimulation to a peripheral nerve fiber that causes it to fire. It starts that pain signal. That pain signal travels to the spinal cord, up the spinal cord to the brain, and we perceive that as pain. As our knowledge and understanding of pain transmission has increased, we now understand that uh, during surgery, due to uh, tissue damage, tissue destruction, there's these release of inflammatory mediators that cause 
a whole host of structural and functional changes to the nerve fibers, to the pain nerve fibers. And what happens is that's what caused those pain nerve fibers to continue firing after surgery is over, even though there's no one there touching the patient. There's no necessary stimulation uh, for the pain. These nerve fibers have been um, changed into a, a harmful state where they're just continually firing and uh, the peripheral nerves, the spinal nerves, all magnify that pain signal as it's being sent up to the brain. Now, that sounds bad, but it's really, there's a silver lining to it in that this is really a, a pathologic or a sort of a, a disease process that has changes, it's like a, a chain and there's multiple points in that chain that we can attack this process. And using medications that are not only acutely analgesic, but also treat this process of surgical hyperalgesia is really the focus behind opioid-free anesthesia and what allows us to dramatically decrease the amount of post-operative pain. That's great. That's great. And there's a whole myriad of medications and pathways, right? Which is why you need a few hours of lecture time to walk through them. Absolutely. And, and to add to that as well, um, opioids acutely are an analgesic medicine. We all know that. They reduce pain. But... Over the, the long term, they have two side effects related to pain, and one is tolerance, meaning each dose of the opioid that the patient gets will be less effective for treating their pain. And the other thing is this concept of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, meaning that as the analgesic effect of the opioid wears off, there's a hyperalgesic response on the other side of that. So opioids actually magnify the amount of pain that the patient will experience postoperatively because under the traditional paradigm, we take the patient to the operating room, we give them a big dose of fentanyl up front on induction of anesthesia to block the response to laryngoscopy, to incision, to surgery, to keep them hemodynamically stable. We get to the end of the surgery and we need to let that fentanyl wear off so the patient will breathe, so they'll be able to wake up. But what we've done is not only sensitize them to the pain and the mechanism of opioid-induced hyperalgesia mirrors that of surgical hyperalgesia. The changes in the spinal cord nerves are almost identical. And so it it magnifies that process of surgical hyperalgesia. So under the traditional paradigm, our patient gets to the recovery room, they've got much more post-operative pain and any opioid used to treat their pain isn't going to work as well because they have that tolerance built up. Could you give us a rundown of the non-opioid medications that you reach for on a routine basis to get someone through the OR? Let's just make it a, a pretty straightforward case like a lab coli. Let's call it a, a healthy, young patient uh, who's having a lab coli. What would be your typical approach to providing that patient's anesthesia? Sure. So 
one sort of caveat to, to this, and there's, there's really two things that we need to think about. We need to think about intraoperative hemodynamic control and using medications to keep a patient hemodynamically stable during surgery, at the same time preventing this process of surgical hyperalgesia or treating this process. The second goal we have or the second thing that we need to think about is post-operative analgesia and making the patient comfortable post-operatively. And a lot of times those two goals may overlap, but you know, in sort of a, a Venn diagram fashion, there are medications on either side of that that are really for one or the other. And so a typical opioid-free anesthetic, if you're just focusing on hemodynamic control, can be done a variety of ways. It can be um, done with a combination of ketamine and an alpha-2 agonist like Presidex or Clonidine. For smaller outpatient surgeries, you might do a combination of lidocaine and magnesium and maybe add a little esmolol in there as well, which is an especially effective technique for very short or outpatient surgeries where the patient needs to wake up quickly and be able to be discharged. And then a lot of times, or I'd say most of the time for the vast majority of surgeries, you know, that combination of ketamine with an alpha-2 agonist is sufficient for intraoperative hemodynamic control but a lot of times we'll add some magnesium to that, we'll add a lidocaine infusion to that, we'll add a, a steroid like Decadron to that. We may give a variety of oral medications beforehand, Tylenol, NSAIDs, um, gabapentins, um, SSRIs. And the goal for that, while it may be helpful for intraoperative hemodynamic management, it's really with the goal of reducing post-operative pain. I have a question about that. So for everyday CRNAs such as myself and such as you two, do you as an organization, SOFA, plan to release sort of, I don't know what you want to call them, recipes or um, dosages, plans for those of us who are opioid-free anesthesia naive mm -hmm. and who are almost there want to get into it but don't know do you run a drip of magnesium do you just bolus magnesium do you do magnesium lidocaine together do you do ketamine with that what you know do you have resources Guidelines, for those of resources us? the literature base that kind of stuff yeah with your studies great question the answer is yes we have all of those things um in the member section of our website, uh, available for download, we have little uh, four by six laminatable pocket cards That's that amazing. have dosage charts on it. We have uh, sort of flow charts that have sort of a decision-making tree on them. So as you're in pre-op and assessing your patient, you can look at 
all the different options available to you and assess which ones are appropriate for that particular patient. As you Then as you go back to the operating room, again, here's all the choices available to you and you can make a decision uh, and it will help you make that decision. We have uh, a resource guide, which is sort of a, a thicker little booklet that we've put together listing all these medications and doing a little bit deeper dive into the pharmacology of each of them, the contraindications, the indications, uh, listing some references. So if you want to go back to the literature and read the studies on, on it, you can do that. And in addition to that, it also, this booklet also gives you the sort of pearls and tips and tricks that people who are regularly practicing opioid-free anesthesia has picked up. Because it's one thing to just sort of read a thing, uh, a reference that says, here's the dose. Um, it's another thing to have someone lay out, all right, this is exactly how you you give it, this is what you can expect to see. This is how to keep yourself out of trouble with the, the sort of more com common complications or side effects of that medication. That's amazing. So I'm sure this is a question that John might have, but for those CRNAs out there that are not members of SOFA, can you talk to us about how to become a member and yeah, what are the benefits? That. That's great. Yeah. Very curious. I'm a member, by the way. <laughs> so our, our website is goopioidfree.com. Uh, just go there. There's a, a login link. I think it's a $100 for a year membership there. And also the, the members or the staff of SOFA is always available to help people out. We're doing that on a, a weekly basis. We get message from our members saying, hey, I've got this case coming up. Uh, can you give me some help on doing my first opioid-free anesthetic? That's amazing. We have, uh, there's a, a discussion board on there for our members that they can get on there, discuss cases, ask questions, uh, and we'll respond to that promptly as well. That's awesome. So $100 for CRNAs, annual membership. You've got uh, access points and resources for SRNAs too, right? Will you speak a little bit about that? What, right. What's an SRNA membership cost? That's a great question. Off the top of my head, I haven't the slightest idea. <laughs> uh, I know it's greatly reduced. and There's like different membership. Like if you're a CRNA, it's 100 bucks, and it is cheaper. I, I don't know either off the top of my head, but I do remember seeing a, a reduced price for SRNAs. Correct. And the other... Uh, thing that we have that a lot of CRNAs have taken, or SRNAs have taken advantage of, is that for SRNAs who are interested in doing research projects on opioid-free anesthesia, doing their doctoral work um, on this, we will help you refine your topic and find an area that really needs uh, research done on it. We get you pointed in the right direction on what work, what research has already been done. We will give you a, a free membership while you're doing the research work. Wow. And then when it's all over, we uh, host these research projects on our website. And so we'll, we have a, a process for uh, 
helping distribute the work that's being done. That's incredible. That's I'm working great. with an SRNA right now that wants to do her graduate project on opioid-free anesthesia, so I will definitely point her in your direction. Uh, tell us briefly about, you also do conferences as SOFA. What do those opportunities entail? Sure. So right now, about once a year, we've been hosting a conference. Uh, our first one was last year. This next one's going to be the last weekend in October. I believe it's the 26th and 27th of October in Panama City. Nice. I know, right? <laughs> right? That sounds amazing. It's a great time to go to Panama City, Florida. <laughs> Absolutely. And so our conference is a little bit different in that we are really focusing on the science of opioid-free anesthesia and implementation. So there are some lectures on there on how to give opioid-free anesthesia. We do cover that, but it's very much becoming an interdisciplinary approach. Uh, we've got pain psychologists on there who are doing work on uh, techniques that can be taught to patients preoperatively by an RN, either in a preoperative clinic or in the surgeon's office, that will teach them how to reduce postoperative pain and, and deal with postoperative pain. We've got physical therapists coming, talking about the work they're doing in reducing pain uh, preoperative and postoperative in surgical patients. Wow. We talk about how to get opioid-free anesthetic uh, programs started in your hospital. And we've got CRNAs who have successfully implemented that at their hospital. We talk about uh, the financial aspects of opioid-free anesthesia. And, you know, you, you, you talk about, well, you're replacing one drug, an opioid, with multiple medications. What are the financial implications of that? How much more expensive is the actual anesthetic, but then how much money do you save on the back end with yeah, being right. able to decrease complications and get the patient discharged sooner? Right. And how do you have that conversation with your hospital administration and your pharmacist? Right. So the the conference isn't just a how do you give post or how do you give opioid free anesthesia? The conference is comprehensive of how do you get this implemented? How do you work with other members of the team? Multimodal. Mo oh my God, I'm going to say that again. Multimodal. Multimodal. Like yeah. opioid-free <laughs> anesthesia. Was, was that your accent or was that you I just had, slurring? I had a stroke. <laughs> I knew it was going to happen. <laughs> Tom, I, that sounds amazing. And from what I remember, uh, the conference is pre-approved for Class A credit for, the, for CRNAs. Is that correct? That is correct. That is correct. And SRNAs are invited to the conference as well. Correct. And again, we have a, a discounted rate for the SRNAs to That's try incredible. and get as many of them as possible as there. One of our missions at SOFA is really to incorporate SRNAs into this as much as possible because as much as, as early as you can get people understanding this and doing this and making this transition, it's so much easier when you don't have to unlearn bad habits. Yeah. 
And just to highlight, uh, your focus is not just the CRNA community, but uh, the global community of anesthesia providers. You were mentioning to me offline that um, you had someone from Europe come over, an anesthesia provider, I forget which nation they were from, that came over to your first conference. Right. We actually have members in Europe and Africa, uh, all around the world. And uh, we did, we had... uh, we had one speaker from Belgium last year. We wow. had an anesthesia provider fly in from Switzerland. And funny thing, he didn't even stay for anything beyond the conference. He literally flew in Friday, was at the conference Saturday, flew back to Switzerland on Sunday. And when I asked him, he said it was totally worth it. He would wow. do it again. Wow. wow, that's incredible. What a great endorsement. That's awesome. Well, Tom, it has been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Uh, And Jamie, thank you so much as well. Um, Is is there anything that either of you would want to sound off on from the standpoint of opioid free anesthesia or getting the word out through continuing education? I do have a question. This This is a Jamie question. Where, oh, where did you come up with the name SOFA? It's perfect. I love it. The Society of Opioid yes. Anesthesia. What brought you to that name? I need to know. I've been dying to That's ask you question. this question. It was just meant to be. <laughs> it's one of nice. those things that, uh, you know, just all came together in one flash of one moment. Really? Just sort of coalesced in my mind. You can um, remember like the moment that you thought about it. Absolutely. Uh, I was talking with Jeff Moulter, uh, and I said, you know, this is just overwhelming. We need to start. Uh, who, who is who is Jeff? I don't know Jeff. Yeah, I'm not familiar with I'm Jeff, familiar with Jeff, but I don't know him personally. Sure. He's uh, a past president of the Ohio Association of Nurse Anesthetists. He's one of the founders of Western Reserve Anesthesia Education, which is a peripheral nerve block training company. He uh, is the founder of his anesthesia practice. Uh, He he has a practice in Finley, Ohio that he started. And he he was an incredible or is an incredible mentor for me. Uh, The first time I met him was when I was still in anesthesia school and he uh, was invited by our program to give uh, a lecture on the business of anesthesia. And it was the first time that my eyes were open to the idea that anesthesia providers, that CRNA specifically, can be more than bedside providers. And opened my eyes to this concept of if what you need, what you want in your professional career doesn't exist, you can go out and build it. Wow. That's so great. Wow. That's so great, man. I just want to highlight, I know that we're like beyond the time frame that we shoot for for these podcasts, but that is such a great point. One of the talks that I gave for the listeners here, uh, you all know this, of course, but here at the conference this week was on provider wellness. And one of the articles from the literature that I cited had a a point in there that said if people can build their professional life, at least 20% of that around something that they truly 
are passionate about, that they truly find intrinsically motivating, that that is a huge driver of wellness and a preventer of burnout. And I have found that in my professional uh, life, that having that time to pursue things that are truly interesting, for me, it would be education and outreach and that kind of stuff, has made all the difference. And I think that to your point, uh, the CRNA profession really allows people to explore those endeavors and to write your ticket, to create your future, to get involved in the things that you want to do, whether that's political advocacy, engaging in, in government and policy, uh, whether that's the business of anesthesia, education, clinical anesthesia, creating your own company, whatever it might be, there's endless opportunities for people to get involved. And you, Tom Barabo, are a shining example of that. And so thank you so much for your work with SOFA. I really, really appreciate uh, you. I appreciate your family supporting you in this endeavor. You've spoken very deeply of your children and your wife this week. Uh, so I appreciate the work that you're doing and I, you're definitely making waves in the anesthesia community internationally. So well done. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of your very, very extremely busy schedule to come speak for Cornerstone Anesthesia Conferences. We're truly grateful. Well, thank you both for being so supportive of myself and SOFA and the opioid free anesthesia movement and helping us and partnering with us to get this information out there uh, as, as much as we can talk about it, as many ways as we can get that information out there, the, the faster we can create change, the faster that we can improve outcomes for our patients, which is really what this is all about. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. All right. Well, I'm inspired. <laughs> Until next time. Join SOFA. Join SOFA. Join SOFA. I'm signing up. I haven't signed up before tonight. I'm signing I remember. up. remember. <laughs> Go com. Thank you very much. Hey, y'all. John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcast? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.